Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Grand Round series. Uh, late April. I think it's going to be a little bit warmer later uh, this week, and hopefully, so the winter could be history and uh, maybe COVID too. Some really good news. Uh, I learned this morning that 66% of Connecticut residents over the age of 16 have been have at least received at least one dose of the vaccine. That's really remarkable. And uh, doing some tracking, it appears that if we if we aim for 70% of the population being fully vaccinated as a test of herd immunity, we have about 81 days left in Connecticut for that, which is really remarkable. So we're looking at uh, end of June, perhaps uh, early July, where we've actually in Connecticut would have achieved herd immunity unless something dramatically changes with the virus. So, uh, but you know, again, so thank you for hanging in there. But today we're going to change topics. We're going to talk about something that's non-COVID, or although my chief of cardiology may tell me differently if he wants to change to COVID. I mean, I guess he has the, the option to do that, but I think it's not COVID today. Uh, we'll do it back on Friday. Uh, but it is one of those really special lectures that we have, and, and this is the Leon Kamaitis lecture. Um, and I believe Leon is logged on, and I'm, I'm going to, in just a few minutes, I'm going to pass the microphone on to him. Um, and hopefully next year we'll have it in in, in real life uh, uh, so so I can get to shake uh, Dr. Kamaitis' big hands and uh, the, what we call the gentle giant hands. Uh, it's been a, a while. I haven't seen him for almost uh, almost two years. And, and, you know, one of the great pleasures of Grand Rounds is to, to see Leon sitting in the auditorium and uh, just learning about, you know, what's going on with his grandchildren uh, and, and in his life, which is always so rich. Uh, Dr. Kamaitis joined Hartford Hospital in 1967 as the uh, city's first pediatric cardiologist and pediatrician in that area. Uh, starting in 71 and for the next 10 years as chief of pediatrics at Hartford Hospital, he built uh, the, ho the hospital's neonatology program, the intensive care unit and ambulatory pediatric services. I mean, just think of that, you know, those three large areas and, and he was the architect, uh, of course, with other people, but he was really the, the brain trust me, behind that. And he oversaw a dramatic increase in the size and quality of our pediatric residency program and recruited several subspecialties that are, uh, you know, in, in, in our books of people have, that have been transformational for, uh, for our, uh, our system of care. Uh, his pioneering, pioneering efforts together with those of the first chair of pediatrics, Dr. Mil Milton Markowitz, created the blueprint for what we call the Consolidated Multi-Specialty and Primary Care Pediatric Services here in the region. And uh, that foresight led ultimately to the opening of Connecticut Children's in 1996, which is really remarkable. I'm going to move on these slides. Steve, can they move on? Um, and and I, you know, I just want to point out, I mean, this is, a, this is a little bit of history. And this is an article from 1977, which are the guidelines for defibrillation of infants and children. Uh, Dr. Kamaitis is the, is the senior author here and the first author. Uh, I also want to point out uh, Dr. John Ray, who uh, is one of the authors here. John uh, recruited me uh, here to Connecticut Children's back in 1998, and, and he was the chair of pediatrics at the time, followed, of course, by Dr. Paul Dwork. And so, again, two uh, giants in the field with uh, Dr. Kamaitis and Dr. Ray. And if we go to the next slide, I, again, you can see, uh, you know, some of the transformational work. This is, uh, I love these pictures. This is 1984 teaching in, in Argentina. You can see Buenos Aires, 3,216 kilometers uh, in, I guess, going right or left. Uh, so he's pretty far away. And then in 1983, introducing CPR in China, you know, the pioneer uh, across the world. 
Um, and this is why in this paper, uh, it's really pointed that leonchymite is a gentle giant and the father of pediatric resuscitation. So for those uh, of you who are residents and medical students who are watching this, uh, you know, he really is somebody who you need to get to know, who, who developed some of the methods and, that we now take for granted uh, that weren't so standard back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and really change the way we do things. He's also shown here with, with Jean, his, his wife, uh, an amazing woman uh, who uh, kept him honest and kept him moving. Uh, so, so Jean is you know, just somebody who I admire and care so much for as well. Uh, again, this, uh, these were the PALS editions. And in 1988, uh, just going back a little bit, I was a first year intern and our class was the first one to actually go through the training of pediatric advanced life support. And there is the book from the first edition in 1988. It was quite an honor to learn to do this, which has now moved on to you know, so many additional editions. And then the Spanish edition, which was published, which Olga and I had a little bit of a, uh, an input in this because we translated some of the elements of that particular edition. Uh, we didn't do that with the Chinese edition. We, we really weren't knowing that. And, and then the last slide that I want to have here, which is a very special one for me, uh, this is from 1991. This was my residency graduation. Uh, and here is Olga. And on the left here in the slide is my father. And on the right is Dr. Kamaitis. Uh, my father was 61 at the time. And um, I believe Dr. Kamaitis was 56, two years younger than I am right now. So it just gives you a sense of what was going on back in 1991 and uh, just a, a, lot of, a lot of history. Uh, so um, again, I, you know, Leon, I, I want to thank you for everything you've done for our city for the kids here in Connecticut and throughout the world, frankly, you've made a huge impact. I can't even begin to think how many lives have been saved because of your efforts in neonatal and pediatric resuscitation, truly a giant uh, in the world. And so thank you for what you have done back then and what you continue to do with mentorship through us and for your friendship uh, primarily. So I'm gonna now pass it on to Dr. Kamaitis who wants to say a couple of words. Thank you very much, uh, Juan. Uh, you're always uh, so generous with your words and I appreciate the mere fact that someone remembers me is, uh, is quite amazing. Uh, it's been um, a great privilege. I feel very grateful that I have uh, survived to see the development of pediatrics uh, from really its uh, beginnings in this area um, over more than a half a century and particularly to see the development of the children's hospital over the last quarter of the century and the quality that has, uh, that has become. And it's been so wonderful to see first John Ray, uh, and now you and the, the tremendous uh, development with the, and what you have brought to it, the Elan and the class that you have brought to it, uh, which is, uh, uh, and the scholarship, and I appreciate that very much. And thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Leon. And you know, now bring our uh, illustrious chief of cardiology, uh, Dr. Upade. We call him Dr. Shea. That's the the common name. And Shea himself has elevated uh, the cardiology division in so many ways. Has 15 different boards in different areas. I think the only one he doesn't have is infectious disease. But we'll give you an honorary. Uh, role in infectious disease, Shea. So thank you for, for steering the group and doing some remarkable things with cardiology, moving it forward and bringing some amazing people. So I'm going to ask you to introduce the speaker and the lecture. So Shea, the podium is yours. 
Well, um, thank you, Juan, and uh, it's always humbling and, and such an honor to introduce uh, uh, the speaker and Dr. Kamaides uh, for these uh, annual lectures. It's one of my favorite things to do, really. So um, I see our division of uh, pediatric cardiology as a gift of Dr. Kamaides. Uh, I think he, he built the, uh, the very initial part of the program and uh, we have expanded it to, uh, to have it grow so much now. Uh, you know, Dr. Kamaitis, uh, if you look at his history, his, his life story is no less than a movie. Uh, he was born in Poland in 1935, uh, and uh, he's written this book uh, where many of the aspects of his life can be uh, learned about uh, Stranger in Many Lands. Uh, he had lived through the World War II, uh, immigrated to England in 1946, and to USA in 1949. This is one of my favorite slides to show every year. He was a uh, 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 in the first batch of the medical students at Albert Einstein, you can see Dr. Kamaiti sitting there uh, in the center. And uh, uh, these are some of the initial uh, recruits that Dr. Kamaiti's had to grow the program. Uh, Dr. Daniel Diana and Dr. Leopold, who's still with us. Uh, what an honor. This is uh, one of the initial surgeons, uh, Dr. Lee Ellison, uh, that, that the program uh, had. Uh, we are celebrating 25th University of Connecticut Children's, and uh, you know, while every aspect of pediatrics has grown, uh, cardiology has grown to become uh, a huge division. Uh, you know, alongside cardiothoracic surgery, we have all subspecialties of uh, Pete's cardiology, and more recently, we just got approved for a fellowship program in Pete's cardiology as well. Uh, the science uh, contributions, everyone knows that Dr. Kamaitis is the father of PALS. Uh, he's also contributed uh, enormously to cardiology that we still uh, use his knowledge to date. Uh, and he's, he was one of the first ones to describe that uh, maternal lupus causes uh, congenital heart block in, in, in neonates. He's touched many lives, uh, including mine. Uh, this is a picture of the NMS series pediatrics where the chapter of Pete's cardiology was written by Dr. Kamaitis, Dr. Diana, Dr. Leopold, and later uh, Dr. Heller. Uh, and I did not realize uh, when I was uh, uh, you know, moving my houses and putting things away, I saw the Pete's cardiology chapters were written by, uh, by uh, you know, these wonderful people that I you know, get to know and, and talk about. It was, uh, uh, it was like a blessing. So uh, moving on. Uh, Dr. Alexander Sasha Aptowski, who happens to be a wonderful friend, uh, is not just a handsome young man, he's very accomplished. Uh, he did his uh, MPH and MD from Columbia, uh, did master's in medical science from Harvard. He did his internal medicine residency from Brigham and Women's, uh, did cardiovascular disease and adult congenital heart disease, as well as pulmonary vascular disease fellowships at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, and then did again uh, adult congenital heart disease and uh, Pulmonary Vascular Disease Fellowships at Boston Children's uh, and Brigham and Women's. Um, after he completed his uh, fellowship at Boston Children's and Brigham and Women's, he stayed at uh, Boston Children's as an attending, initially as an instructor, uh, and then was promoted to assistant, and in 2017 as the associate professor uh, of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he played a key role in creating and developing the Dysnea uh, Center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, he also started uh, the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Biobank Repository at Boston Children's. Um, more recently, he moved to Cincinnati to uh, lead the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program and uh, was, was uh, accepted there as a professor of uh, pediatrics at Cincinnati College of Medicine uh, from January uh, last year. Uh, he has enormous contributions to science uh, and teaching. Uh, 
Uh, he is regarded as one of the world authorities in, in uh, pulmonary hypertension and congenital heart disease and exercise physiology. Uh, and he's a uh, reviewer of many journals uh, and uh, editor of many uh, journals, uh, some of them being the top in cardiology. Um, he's also written books. And this is, uh, if you want to learn more about exercise physiology for pediatric and congenital heart disease, you can uh, certainly read and become uh, enhanced in your knowledge of exercise physiology. Uh, these are the Bach days, the Boston Adult Congenital Heart Disease uh, Fellowship days. Uh, I was a fellow there. You can see Dr. Optowski right in the center. Uh, I'm at the extreme left of the screen. And those are my co-fellows. Uh, when we were, uh, when I was a fellow there, you know, I learned a lot from doc Dr. Optowski and uh, we, we made a bond, a, kind of a friendship bond. And uh, he knew that I was into Bollywood. He gifted me a book of Bollywood posters. Uh, and uh, in, in that poster, I found a picture of this actor, which for a moment I thought was Dr. Optowski, but no, he's a Bollywood movie star. So uh, on that note, uh, uh, thank you, Sasha. Uh, it's a true pleasure and honor for you to, uh, to give this talk to us and enhance our knowledge on exercise physiology and congenital heart disease. Um, the podium is yours. I, I will say that having grown up in New York City, I understand uh, Connecticut uh, hospitality. I feel at home having seen my hairline recede over the years there uh, in those photographs. Um, I'll share my screen here. This is a, uh, someone could just confirm that they could, that my screen is showing. Can you see my screen? Yeah. So uh, today I'm going to talk a bit about exercise physiology, um, mostly in general, but also in congenital heart disease. And when I first wrote the uh, title, I had, I had included as a window on, onto what makes us human. Uh, and as I read uh, Dr. Humaitis, um, and I think that may be the correct pronunciation from the AAP um, oral history. Um, I, uh, as I read his biography, um, uh, and he described uh, Richard Van working with Richard Van Prague, I think in 1961 when doing when he was doing uh, uh, pediatric cardiology and uh, pathology uh, for a bit in in Boston. Um, one of the reasons I thought of this was from Dr. Van Prague, who is I guess in his 80s at the time. Um, this is uh, five years ago. Uh, would give us uh, still give us lectures and. Um, I mentioned that the right ventricle is one of the things that made us human and that it allowed us to uh, to be able to speak and to, to vocalize. Uh, uh, anyhow, um, the truth, though, is that I think that was a bit of a bait and switch. Um, the need and ability to perform physical work, what called physical activity, is common to all animals, not obviously just to humans. And exercise, the voluntary performance of physical work to improve fitness in that definition may be uniquely human. And exercise physiology or physical work physiology provides a fascinating perspective to reimagine characteristics contributing to our humanness, such as upright posture and the right ventricle. But I have to say, after staying up the last couple of nights uh, reading, uh, if you're looking for a window uh, into the positive things about what makes us human and also the negative things, uh, you'll, I'm, I'm gonna uh, break up a little bit here in that uh, I'm thinking a bit of my great uncle who, uh, was from Latvia, um, and the story reminded me of him. You'll be much better served reading uh, one of Dr. Khmaidi's books. 
much easier to talk about exercise physiology. So we'll talk a bit today about uh, fundamentals of exercise physiology, why cardiopulmonary exercise testing is uh, especially useful, um, how we perform and interpret cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and then a bit about the why, the role of invasive exercise testing to better figure out why somebody is limited. And we'll go through probably one or two eye-opening cases. I don't think we'll have time for three, um, but I, I kept it in there so that uh, the slides would include uh, all of them. So why is this relevant to you? So exercise uh, physiology and congenital heart disease probably isn't the most relevant topic for 90 plus percent of you. Um, but I do think that uh, the capacity for physical work is fundamental to life uh, and to the quality of people's lives, things that we prioritize as uh, medical uh, providers. Uh, and uh, effort intolerance is among the most common presenting symptoms in most contexts. Uh, and that may be uh, shortness of breath or uh, anxiety or uh, some sort of discomfort but it's very common. And cardiopulmonary exercise testing is an efficient uh, and underused approach to diagnosis the diagnose the cause of effort intolerance and also uh, define its severity. And by efficient, I mean that one test can tell you a lot and also that it's quite inexpensive uh, relative to other tests. And I'm just gonna assume that you're someone who loves to have their sense of wonder uh, be tickled um, or re-tickled. Uh, and exercise testing uh, really uh, enables us to look with a different perspective on things right under our noses uh, day to day, whether we think about them medically uh, or otherwise. And this is just a picture I took a few days ago uh, with my phone, nothing special, of some moss uh, right outside my house. So the take-home points, uh, or really, I guess, keep-home points at this point, um, will be that cardiopulmonary exercise testing provides quantitative and objective assessment of functional capacity, an integrated view of the body's response to physical work, uh, strong prognostic power, and insight into underlying pathophysiology. The interpretation, like most good tests, will vary depending on the underlying diagnosis and context. And invasive exercise testing with catheterization enables a more detailed understanding in patients with cardiovascular limit to exercise. So let's back up a second and talk about the fundamentals of exercise physiology. Here are five questions that I think seem pretty simple uh, that you'd think we would be able to answer. And, and are, are for some of them, at least for most of you, will be a little surprising. The first question, lactic acid production is beneficial. Muscle is able to extract more oxygen from the blood. Um, whatever your politics, we're talking about feeling the burn here. Uh, in many normal people, the lungs limit aerobic capacity. So that means you get to the limit of what your lungs can do. Uh, maybe that causes shortness of breath and uh, you can't go any further. In normal people, the systolic blood pressure can get over 200 or even 220 with intense aerobic exercise. Is that true or false? Um, number four, the same volume of blood, uh, say a liter, uh, will carry more oxygen during exercise than at rest. So if you exercise for five minutes, at five minutes into exercise, uh, your blood can carry more oxygen. Is that true or false? And lastly, does oxygen saturation increase with exercise as you're breathing more deeply and efficiently? And the answers are that lactic acid indeed is beneficial uh, in the sense that it allows your muscles to extract more oxygen. Um, in many normal people, and actually very few, if any normal people, the, the lungs limit aerobic capacity. Lungs are not a major determinant, except at the extremes. 
Um, indeed, systolic blood pressure can get up above 200 or even higher with high levels of activity uh, with aerobic exercise. And seemingly impossibly, the same volume of blood carries more oxygen from the lungs to the body during exercise than at rest. And no, oxygen saturation does not increase with exercise. In fact, for everybody, it falls. So I hope that this, these questions start us thinking a little bit about some of the mysteries of how our body um, is able to uh, do physical work so effectively. But more importantly, let's get a little bit competitive. And which is better, the heart or the lungs? All right, so cast your vote. I think it's pretty clear the heart is better. And definitely per unit, you know, there's one heart, two lungs. So why do you have a heart? Um, I, I know uh, Dr. Heller and Dr. Upadier and uh, uh, Ms. Fairchild pretty well. And they always tell me that the purpose of the heart is to love, and that is true. Um, but primarily, and I think this really uh, goes a bit to Dr. Humaydi's um, uh, career and his pioneering work in uh, resuscitation, uh, at least in the acute phase, oxygen is by far uh, the most important thing that the heart is delivering to tissues. The question becomes why you have lungs, and it turns out that Plato answered that question a few thousand years ago, um, and, and there's no better answer today because it's still a mystery, but the gods foreknowing that the palpitation of the heart and the expectation of danger and the swelling of passion was caused by fire formed as a supporter to the heart, the lung, as a soft spring that when passion was rife within, the heart beating against a yielding body might suffer less and join with passion in the service of reason. Um, so this is the way we view uh, the lung as, as cardiologists today. So joking aside, the problem of physical work. So at rest, there's a stable flux of oxygen into the body and carbon dioxide out of the body. And in order to perform ongoing physical work, uh, tissues, largely skeletal muscle, needs oxygen. Carbon dioxide and other byproducts must be removed. And kind of amazingly, exercise leads to an oxygen demand uh, of 10 to 15 fold uh, greater than at rest. And that can be over a few minutes, you go from needing, you know, X amount of oxygen to 15 times as much oxygen. So the problem is how to, how to address that. And I think it goes without saying uh, that what we do is we transmit that oxygen from our mouth somehow to the working muscle. And this is a figure that even if you haven't uh, done much in the way of exercise physiology, and uh, Stephen mentioned to me that he uh, is trained as an exercise physiologist um, and has expertise in that. So he has definitely seen this uh, figure, except for the little red blood cells, which, which are my contribution. Um, that this really diagrams what the body has to do to get oxygen from the environment to the muscle and then carbon dioxide and other byproducts uh, back uh, to the body and in terms of carbon dioxide to the lungs and out. Um, uh, getting, we'll, get rid, we'll look at that figure a bit more and getting rid of just the distracting uh, contribution of the red blood cell. Um, so if you need 10 to 15 times more oxygen, a simplistic cardiologist view is, ah, the heart just pumps more. Right? So what the heart pumps is cardiac output, how many liters of blood you pump out per minute. And that's a function of stroke volume, how much blood you pump out per beat and heart rate, how many beats you have per minute. So with exercise, both stroke volume and heart rate increase. Um, so case closed. And if you look at um, the, the figure on the right, um, 
oxygen consumption and cardiac output surely do uh, increase in parallel during exercise. And there's a very strong correlation. Uh, and there is no question that cardiac output is one of the major contributors to oxygen consumption, increase, uh, oxygen consumption increasing. But cardiac output increases in fit people, in fit young people, three to five-fold. I think, as you can see from my hairline, uh, my cardiac output with exercise probably increases two or threefold. And as we get older, if we're unwell, our cardiac output augmentation decreases over time. But where does the rest of the oxygen come from? So we need 10 to 15 fold more oxygen and our cardiac output might, might increase three or four or five fold. Lance Armstrong on steroids might be five and a half fold. So taking a step back, and I'm sorry for the equation, but I'll also uh, put in a uh, description of um, an analogy of a train delivering coal. Um, I suppose we'll have to change that to something more uh, sustainable soon. Um, but for now we have coal. So when we think about the thick principle, um, when we think about oxygen consumption, it's a function of cardiac output as well as this more complex uh, uh, part of the function on the right. And that is the arterial oxygen content minus the venous oxygen content. And all that really means is the difference in how much oxygen there is per liter of blood in your arteries and how much blood there, uh, oxygen there is uh, in your uh, veins. So if you think about this as a train delivering coal, uh, the cardiac output is how many train cars are arriving at a station uh, and offloading some of their coal every hour. And the oxygen uh, uh, content difference is the amount of coal that's delivered per car. So if you have 10 trains arriving per hour and uh, uh, one pound of coal or one ton of coal delivered per car, you have 10 times one and 10 tons of coal uh, or, or oxygen in this case uh, per car. So as I think I had mentioned, cardiac output is a function of heart rate and stroke volume. And that might be thought of as how many trains are arriving every hour and how many cars, coal cars there are per train. So if there are three trains and uh, each one of them has an average of three coal cars. You'd have about uh, nine coal cars uh, per hour. And then, of course, we can get into more complex things such as what is it uh, that decides how many coal cars there are? We don't have to get into this. When we think about stroke volume, uh, you think about the volume of the heart, the ejection fraction, and whether there's regurgitation. And getting to the more complex side, uh, we have the difference in oxygen content in the arteries and the veins. And that's really largely a function of your hemoglobin concentration. So if you have more hemoglobin, you can carry more oxygen. And then the saturation of uh, oxygen, uh, how, how saturated that hemoglobin is with oxygen in the arteries and the veins. So that might be thought of as the average percent of the cars filled with coal when they arrive at the station, the volume available for coal per car, so how big they are, they're double-deckers, and then the average uh, percent of the cars that are filled with coal on departure, because they might not totally offload all their coal. So how much coal arrives and how much coal leaves, and that is that difference is the amount of coal delivered per car. So you have how many cars there are times the amount of coal delivered per car. So when we get down to it, this is what we have, and we can measure pretty easily, non-invasively, these three variables. Oxygen consumption, that's with a mask or a mouthpiece. 
the heart rate with an EKG or even a pulse oximeter, and the oxygen saturation with a pulse oximeter. We can't measure these other things, but that re requires invasive, extra, uh, invasive testing. Um, so we can extrapolate uh, these other things. The hemoglobin is, is an interesting one because it's pretty easy to measure hemoglobin, but we don't tend to do it before exercise testing. Um, and more than once, uh, in, in a cardiopulmonary exercise test has been used as an expensive and inefficient way to diagnose, say, B12 deficiency or iron deficiency. So my personal belief is that that probably makes sense to measure hemoglobin uh, when one is performing an exercise test, but it's not standard and I don't do it regularly as well, but it probably is the right thing to do. Um, so uh, non-invasive exercise testing involves measuring these three variables, generally assuming these variables uh, on the right, hemoglobin and venous oxygen saturation are similar for all people, and then estimating stroke volume. And I'll get to that in a second. So where do we get more oxygen? We get it from the blood. So if you look at this plot, this is how much oxygen there is in blood um, in different places. So this is your arterial oxygen capacity at rest. Uh, here in this patient, it might be uh, 19 and a half. Um, and this is the overall oxygen uptake. And with exercise, that goes up. We'll get to why in a second, your arterial capacity. And then this is your mixed venous oxygen content, which goes down with exercise. So at rest, you might have an oxygen saturation of 98%. And your mixed venous saturation um, goes down, it may be 70% at rest in a normal person. And with exercise, your oxygen saturation may go down a little bit as, uh, for various reasons we won't get into. And your mixed venous saturation will go down as your arteriovenous oxygen content difference goes up, meaning your Blood, uh, your uh, tissues, mainly muscles, are extracting more, uh, uh, more oxygen from the blood. And at high levels of exercise, you may have uh, maybe 80% or a little bit less of the oxygen content in the arterial blood extracted from uh, that blood. So that extra oxygen, so if your cardiac output goes up fourfold, your oxygen extraction might go up from 25% to 75% of the oxygen in your blood. So it increases threefold. So if you increase threefold and threefold altogether, that gives you nine times higher oxygen delivery to your tissues. What about this? Why, what is this about the arterial oxygen content uh, capacity increasing? Now that difference is because that increased difference over exercise is because your oxygen saturation in the arteries is going down a little bit with exercise, say from 98% to 95%. Interestingly, in high-level athletes, it may go down to 90% or even lower. We're talking very high-level athletes, and that's because with really high flow through the lungs, you open up arterial venous malformation or arterial venous connections. They're not malformations, but they open up and they let blood through the lungs. And they also, you're, you're, there's such fast passage through the lungs that you may not fully oxygenate. So your saturation will go down a little bit surprising, but your arterial capacity increases. And that's because with exercise, you actually increase your hemoglobin concentration. So this is with, um, this is in a population or a cohort of patients. Uh, you have, uh, this is your percent of maximum VO2. This is at rest. And this is increased 
um, hemoglobin concentration with exercise. So maximum VO2 is how much oxygen you can take in and get to your tissues and use uh, with exercise. And people who are more fit, they can, do, uh, they can use more oxygen. So the percent change in hemoglobin, this is interesting. And this is something you see in any individual who exercises. So I, put, I took Shay or Nicole or any of you, and I put you on a bicycle or a treadmill um, and you exercised five or 10 minutes into exercise. Once you get a little bit above your lactic, uh, uh, your lactic acid threshold, uh, your anaerobic threshold, uh, your hemoglobin concentration actually goes up. And, you know, this is not something you would think would be something that would happen. It's, you know, not something we consider. Um, but it turns out that it is reproducible. And it be it's because with the lactic acid in tissues, you actually have fluid water moving into tissues and out of uh, the blood. Uh, and you hemoconcentrate around the same hemoglobin uh, volume, and therefore have a higher uh, hemoglobin concentration in blood. And I think this is something that I, I would guess uh, two or 3% of you may know, um, even in, uh, having gone to med school or whatnot, I certainly didn't know until um, well into my training. Um, and I think is a bit surprising. It really highlights how intricate our exercise, uh, our, our ability to do physical work it is and how, uh, how even the smallest details uh, conspire to allow us to deliver oxygen to our tissues. So I'll go briefly through a couple um, important components of this um, uh, diagram because exercise really is an amazingly choreographed routine between multiple organ systems. For all my, um, you know, trash talking about the lungs and and other other things other than the heart. In truth, uh, if I may say so myself, I'm one of the least chauvinistic cardiologists uh, and exercise and to be able to do work and the ability to be a human depend on all of these organs working collaboratively and well together. Um, and a defect in any one of these steps uh, creates uh, equivalently severe limitation um, with some nuanced differences, but truly uh, whether it be the pulmonary circulation, the peripheral circulation, the mitochondria, uh, the lungs, the blood, the muscle, um, the airway, any of those uh, will cause uh, a, a defect in your ability to perform activity. So uh, going through uh, a, a few of these uh, sections, the pulmonary circulation, it's something we don't consider uh, very regularly, um, but with exercise, there are dramatic changes in the pulmonary circulation. Uh, many of these are passive, unlike in the peripheral circulation, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, which has active vasodilation uh, and constriction in different, with different mechanisms. The pulmonary circulation is thought to be largely passive and with increased flow through the lungs, you have recruitment and dilation uh, of more pulmonary uh, blood vessels. And you may remember uh, west zones um, and that some blood vessels are collapsed. Some uh, capillaries are collapsed at rest and depending on what zone you're in. I was a bit surprised to discover that it wasn't this very um, clean cut uh, upper and lower lung zones um, uh, as is usually diagrammed, but rather uh, more uh, heterogeneously distributed through the lung. Uh, but the concept is such that some areas of the lung uh, may not be getting uh, perfusion. And with exercise, as you increase flow and, and, and pressure, uh, you recruit and uh, vasodilate. 
in people with uh, mild defects in, pulmonary, in the pulmonary vasculature, that may not be the case. The peripheral circulation, as much as I hate to say it, uh, is a little bit more sophisticated. Yes, it says here at the bottom, dilate and recruit, and I'm not entirely sure why one is recruit and dilate and the other is dilate and uh, recruit. Uh, but in truth, it is uh, a bit more well uh, um, specifically uh, uh, choreographed in that we have to think about different tissues. And if you look at the boxes on the left, uh, that those are conceptual diagrams of how much cardiac output there is at rest, the area of that square, and how much there is at exercise to the whole body that's coming through the right atrium and then out the left ventricle eventually after it goes to the lung and out the body through the aorta. So in this case, I actually looked at the boxes. We just see the question and answer here. Um, uh, it looks about four and a half fold larger, but that belies the point um, that with exercise, oh, one second here, blood flow to the muscles goes up much more than fourfold. It might go up here 15 or 20 fold, some extraordinary amount because those are the tissues that need blood. Um, while blood flow to other organs varies. And you may remember from training and when you were taking the boards that um, with the heart, uh, basically uh, even at rest, uh, it uh, extracts almost fully that the coronary sinus blood uh, has the lowest saturation of all the, the veins coming back to the heart. Um, and basically the flow to the heart goes up in proportion uh, to the cardiac output. So at rest, it might be 5% and with exercise, 5% blood flow of the kidneys goes down a little bit with exercise. As you know, the kidneys and, and the gut and the liver, their purpose is largely to filter um, and to do stuff with the blood, not to use the oxygen from the blood. So the, the saturation of blood coming from the kidneys and the liver back to the heart is going to be pretty high because let's say your kidney and your heart uh, is getting blood that's 98% saturated like the rest of your body. The kidney gets a ton of blood. It only has to take a little bit of oxygen from each unit of blood. And so the saturation in the renal veins might be 90%. And you can apply the FIC principle to any organ or any uh, vascular bed, as long as you can measure the oxygen consumption. Obviously that's harder to do for the kidneys than the lungs because you can't just put a mouthpiece on the kidneys. Um, but the idea is the same. And so, you know, the blood flow to the kidneys and the gut may go down a little bit with exercise. Um, while the proportion goes down a lot, um, the brain uh, may go up a little bit, has auto-regulation. Now, each of these tissues has different regulation. Um, and then the skin is the most complex in that at different stages of exercise, you'll have different patterns uh, early on, you may have vasoconstriction, but as you become hot and have to remove heat, you have vasodilation. And so that shifts and is presumably why uh, there's con confusingly uh, a sort of mix here of uh, the muscles and the skin. Anyhow, um, part of the reason that you extract more uh, from your blood is that you're sort of shunting blood away from the kidney and the, and the uh, liver and the gut towards tissues that extract more oxygen. Um, but there's more to it. I, you should be grateful to me that
that I did not include a, this picture because it is a uh, one of the most common causes of post-traumatic stress in any medical trainee, and that is those sigmoid curves of oxygen uh, dissociation from uh, from hemoglobin uh, that you have to learn in medical school or dental school or most other training um, for unclear reasons. But if you remember those sigmoid curves move to the left or the right, depending on pH, or CO2 or H plus or uh, whatever that two, three DP, don't tell anyone, I don't know what the, uh, the, that is. Uh, we're not gonna talk about that. Um, but all of those things um, in uh, exercising muscle shift that curve such that more oxygen is uh, offloaded at the muscle uh, and, uh, or sorry, is offloaded to the muscle um, uh, with exercise. So, there's an often overlooked limit. We focus on the heart uh, and uh, we talk about the lungs, um, but tissue has to be able to extract and use oxygen, mainly muscles. Mitochondrial disorders uh, can impair extraction uh, and the effect is a limit in achievable uh, arteriovenous oxygen difference. Deconditioning and inefficient perfusion. So for example, some uh, medications such as um, amlodipine or uh, endothelin receptor blockers probably uh, cause it such that uh, you don't as effectively shunt away from your kidneys and your liver with exercise, but that they can cause a similar if milder picture and that doesn't generally cause uh, symptoms. Anemia produces a similar constraint on the amount of oxygen delivered per volume of blood. And I'm going to skip over some things because I realize that it's probably better to focus on this background than on the specifics um, as we move forward uh, to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Um, but, but I wanted to focus on this. Um, so here's an example. I saw one of the questions uh, in the chat about training. Um, and, and you may ask, well, how does training work? Well, here's um, a pretty intensive study of only three subjects, but it's really neat. These studies from 1960s, 70s, 80s, how well they were done. And then in three subjects with very controlled and extreme interventions, you can really learn a ton. So in these patients, they had strict bed rest for 20 days. And uh, no matter how much we like to think that we might be doing that during the pandemic, that's pretty hard to achieve. It's kind of like uh, being in space without, uh, zero, uh, without quite having zero G. And then they're allowed to be sedentary and, and be active. And you can see that Q, by the way, is um, from the German word for quellum. There's a joke that uh, if you think something hasn't been done, you just don't, don't uh, know how to read German. Uh, I wonder if Dr. Hermides, your, uh, your trick was that you discovered a pediatric resuscitation by reading something from Germany from 1883, uh, but that will remain our secret. But the point is that uh, this comes from the German word for quellung, uh, which I guess is a spring uh, in terms of like a mountain spring. Uh, but uh, so with sedentary, when you're sedentary, you get some more cardiac output and with more training, you both increase cardiac output and improve your ability to extract oxygen, but not a ton. That is, however, important uh, for high-level exercisers, um, not probably for most of us, um, but this guy, uh, Lance Armstrong, knows very well that the AVO2 difference is important and that improving your hemoglobin co uh, concentration, uh, whether by erythropoietin or other methods, uh, is one way to achieve that. So what could possibly go wrong? anything from mouth to uh, mitochondria. We won't get into this though. Um, I will mention this is my shout out to what makes us human. It is 
pretty fascinating to think about how we are different than a lot of animals. So here's a beautiful diagram, again, from uh, a while back of uh, the blood uh, distribution in a human upright with a lot of pooling in the hands and even more in the feet. And you can see most of our blood volume is below the heart. If you think about a dog or just about any other animal, um, most of their blood volume is at or above heart level. Uh, if you think about uh, fish, it's even more extreme, obviously, because of the lack of gravity. Giraffes, we won't get into, but also fascinating. Um, but we have to figure out uh, how to deal with this. And it's amazing we don't pass out every time we stand up. And there are specific diagnoses that are probably very hard to study in animals, such as postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, that we may talk about later, but probably won't have time. And here in the bottom left, uh, you can see one, uh, some of the difference between supine, laying down on your back exercise, and upright exercise. This shows your uh, ventricular volume uh, with diastole and systole. You can see that uh, with diastole, it increases, but not as much as when you're upright. You don't augment it as much because when you're laying down, most of the blood is already coming back to your, uh, your heart without any extra activity. Um, but what you can see is with exercise, you have this large stroke volume. Um, and uh, in when you're standing up, uh, much of your blood pools in your legs. So your ventricular volume uh, decreases and your stroke volume is much lower. That's why your heart rate is higher. And stroke volume augments much more proportionally with exercise in the upright position. It's kind of amazing just with walking, what happens to your blood pressure, right atrial pressure, cardiac output all go up a lot because while heart chauvinists focus on the heart, uh, in truth, there's a lot more to it. And just with walking, the first thing that happens is you actually push blood back to your heart and that causes cardiac output to increase. So the muscle pump and the, va the valves in your muscles cause blood to come back to your heart. And even before the heart does anything, uh, stroke volume and cardiac output go up. Uh, if you think about the heart as the important part, you're wrong. If blood doesn't come back to the heart, you can't increase blood flowing out of the heart. So I'll just mention cardiopulmonary exercise test. Why do we perform it? Well, a lot of time you already know at the extreme uh, context what someone's prognosis is by just looking at them. Age, cachexia, anorexia, certain symptoms such as functional limitations, glomerular filtration rate, albumin and exercise capacity are all uh, important. Most of these quantitative ones, age is not uh, addressable, but GFR and albumin uh, are, are measurable in a continuous way, but only at the extremes do we really start to have worse prognosis. Exercise capacity, however, is a much more continuous um, uh, uh, variable. And this is in the general population, your risk of death at different um, quintiles of exercise capacity. Uh, and uh, by far most deaths occur at the bottom, uh, people who are not, don't have high exercise capacity. It's true also in congenital heart disease, almost all deaths actually occur uh, in patients with reduced exercise capacity. I'm gonna go a little bit quickly here because prediction, exercise testing is very robust for prediction, but it's not nearly as interesting um, and, it's not, and usually it's not as actionable as understanding why. So cardiopulmonary exercise testing involves having someone to exercise and then measuring not only standard exercise variables like how much work they're doing or blood pressure or EKG, but also um, their breathing. So 
their tidal volumes and minute ventilation and how much oxygen and carbon dioxide there is in the air going into or out of uh, the mouth. And um, we'll talk for another five minutes and then we'll answer questions. The result is a, a cardiologist nightmare. Um, right now I'm in trouble because here's my list of exercise tests to read. Um, what you can see is this is the sort of plot that maybe a pediatric cardiologist, but definitely not an adult cardiologist, really a nephrologist or maybe a neurologist like this kind of nuanced data. Cardiologists like, should we do something or shouldn't we? Should we start a medication? Should we uh, do a catheterization or surgery? But this gives a ton of information. So let's take a couple of very specific parts of it so you get a sense of some of the information that you get. So this is a very simple plot of minute ventilation, how much you're breathing per minute against work rate. And as you might guess, it goes up with exercise. One thing I'm just gonna mention is that for all of these variables, the variability at rest is much higher than the variability as you exercise at any work rate. Because at rest, you can breathe a little more or a little less, not a big deal. But as you exercise, your body becomes much more finely tuned to what you're doing. And what you can see with this is that it can give us a sense of whether there's a ventilatory limit to exercise. You can measure or estimate something called a maximum voluntary ventilation. That's how much you could breathe in a given minute. And with exercise, you have an increase in your minute ventilation. And usually for most normal people, you get to a point with 20 or 30% reserve. Um, and that's called your breathing reserve. Now, if you have something like emphysema, your maximum voluntary ventilation will be lower and you may have uh, no reserve at the peak of exercise. So that gives us a sense of breathing reserve and whether the lungs might be limiting you. So lungs only limit you when you have lung disease or when you're super duper well-trained. So Lance Armstrong on steroids might be limited by his lungs. Interestingly, lungs don't really get better with training, except maybe swimming improves your spirometry a little bit, 20 or 30%, but otherwise it's really the heart and vessels and muscle and nerves that improve the lungs don't. So here are another couple plots. There's your oxygen consumption and your carbon dioxide production. You can see that they cross. That's because you become anaerobic and start making CO2 without increasing oxygen consumption the same amount. And this plot I'm gonna focus on here, that's a simple one with increasing exercise or work rate on the bottom there, um, your heart rate is going to increase. That goes without saying. Now, if we think about the Fick equation earlier, if we're going to assume the other things that we're not measuring are all about the same for everyone, oxygen consumption, VO2, is gonna be proportional to cardiac output. If that's the case, then VO2 as a cardiac output surrogate divided by heart rate is going to be a surrogate of how of stroke volume, how much oxygen is pumped to the body every beat. And that is this, VO2 divided by heart rate, also called the oxygen pulse, how much oxygen there is per beat. And a simplistic cardiologist will say, well, that's the same as the stroke volume. Of course, that's assuming that the patient doesn't have anemia or erythrocytosis, that the patient doesn't have hypoxemia in the arteries and is able to extract oxygen. So the pattern, and this is where the nephrologist in, in us comes out, the pattern in addition to positive, negative, and a quantitative measurement really gives a lot of value. 
So these are two different patients, the top row and the bottom row. And what you see is this is a patient with a pacemaker and something called pacemaker Wenckebach. And what you see is with exercise over time in about eight minutes or seven and a half minutes of exercise, all of a sudden the heart rate drops precipitously. And that's because of, of odd pacemaker performance that all of a sudden the pacemaker can go faster. And so it says I'm blocking just about two to one. Um, and then in this patient, happily, what you see here is the oxygen pulse jumps up. So almost instantaneously for every beat, because there's more blood coming back, since you have more time relaxing, your oxygen uh, pulse, how much oxygen per beat goes up. And you can see on the right here that oxygen consumption in red, those red dots continues to increase. This patient was totally asymptomatic despite a heart rate dropping from 60 to 105 there. The patient at the bottom is a patient with detransposition of the great arteries and a mustard atrial switch. That means there are these tunnels through the atrium that are stiff and calcified and they can't, uh, and that basically limits your ability to uh, increase return to the heart as the heart rate goes up. And you can see this patient um, sort of with at the, towards the top of exercise, just naturally their heart rate's going up. It doesn't go up as much as normal, probably because they have sinus node dysfunction. Um, and uh, their, their O2 pulse, their stroke volume probably decreases. This patient wasn't becoming hypoxemic. So this is a pattern we see pretty frequently um, and could happen from venous obstruction as well. Um, and these patients often report that at a certain level of exercise, they'll sort of hit a wall. Now I'm gonna skip through a bunch of things here um, just because I want to get towards the end here. And I was a little bit too enthusiastic and as usual, optimistic about my ability to get uh, through things. Um, but I'm gonna get to the last case because I think that's the one that most epitomizes um, sort of something that uh, is, is sort of a, a, um, a mind teaser that gets you to think a little bit about the things we should be thinking about. And it'll take one minute, literally. This actually happened about a month ago. A 31 year old transgender man is referred for possible surgical repair of re uh, diagnosed congenital heart disease. He has notable comorbidities and was quite obese. A mastectomy had not yet been performed, but he had taken testosterone for many years and he has a peak oxygen consumption of a number that means nothing to you. So what is his normal? How should we estimate, estimate uh, expected peak oxygen consumption? Should we think about him as a male or a female? An average of those two? We don't really have to think sociologically or what he prefers. We wanna know which will provide the relevant comparison to most accurately uh, represent his degree of limitation and surgical risk. So I'm not gonna to get too much into sex differences in aerobic performance, but needless to say, if we were gonna say he was more female in his exercise uh, performance, he would have a normal exercise capacity and male, he would have substantially decreased exercise capacity. Males do have an advantage with exercise. And here are a few of the sex differences. The main ones of note are skeletal muscle mass uh, and body composition, as well as hemoglobin concentration given menstruation. I'm not gonna get into the differences, uh, too much into the differences uh, in exercise performance, except to say women are more dependent on heart rate and don't augment stroke volume as much, which is part of the reason why there's so much more uh, uh, prone to developing postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Interestingly, when I first came here, they were doing bioimpedance on all patients doing exercise tests. Um, I thought it was kind of silly and it wasn't that accurate. It turns out I was wrong. This is a study of 165 patients, kids 
who were referred for reasons um, that really didn't indicate cardiovascular disease. And it turned out using traditional peak VO2 estimates, you have a pretty good correlation with peak VO2, but a much better correlation if you use skeletal muscle mass. And what's really fascinating is it really accounts for almost all the differences between males and females uh, in their peak VO2. So it turns out we had done bioimpedance on this patient and we were able to answer this question objectively. His skeletal muscle mass was 100% of predicted for men his age. So that's it. Um, so I hope you'll take away the messages of that exercise is fascinating. It helps you think about uh, our day-to-day -day activity in a different way. Um, and also take away uh, the lesson of our friends in Connecticut uh, that while oxygen delivery is important, uh, love might be a little more important. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sasha, for an extraordinary presentation. It, 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 it just reminded me for as an infectious disease doctor, my life is a lot easier than for you guys, the cardiologist. Um, it's just gram stains and then antibiotics. Uh, the, our, our pediatric neurologist, Dr. Zellenray, says the brain is best. The heart and lungs are just there to serve the proper brain function. So just that's a neurologist perspective. So thank you, Ed, for that mm -hmm. comment. We have three questions um, in uh, their comments. So the first one is a comment from Dr. Kamaitis. Uh, thank you, Sasha, for an outstandingly clear and interesting lecture and for allowing your humanity to accompany the data. I agree with him 100%. So thank you, Leon, for that comment. Uh, from Dr. Alberto Cohen, one of our pediatricians, also ID trained, uh, extraordinary talk. And if a person, and a person who trains regularly, how long will the hemoconcentration last and how many percentage points is expected in the hematic or above normal? I, I think I'd like to, just because people might drop off, I, I'd like to answer the other question first uh, quickly because it's important because uh, I think I, I may have uh, misled a little bit with that. I didn't mention something, the most important thing about the blood pressure increase with exercise. And this is the most fascinating aspect of it. And then I'll get to a very interesting, Dr. Cohen uh, uh, Avo's uh, question is, is very interesting and might be more interesting to me, but not as important to, to correct. So yes, blood pressure goes up with exercise and it can go up a ton. In fact, it is linear. The more you do, the higher the blood pressure goes up, but that is not bad. Okay, that blood pressure increase. Um, yes, if you use cocaine and your blood pressure increases acutely, you have a risk of stroke and other issues. With exercise, presumably there is some risk, but it is normal and overall it is good uh, for people. That increase in blood pressure is not dangerous. It is not associated in the same way with risk. And over time, uh, 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 Dr. Scherzer is talking about uh, patients who are obese and uh, have, have, have increased blood pressure and have asthma, for example, um, are we putting extra strain on them? And the answer is, well, maybe, but that's kind of the goal because we're trying to get them trained. And part of that, yes, is the heart, but it's also the blood vessels response to exercise and neurohormonal neuro. See, I mentioned the brain uh, response to exercise. So it's really important to say, um, that yes, the more you do, the more your blood pressure goes up. And sure enough, with really competitive athletes, it might go up to 250. Interestingly, it goes up similarly, the slope goes up similarly in kids and adults, which I found fascinating. Um, but you know, if but the kids start out with lower blood pressure and they don't do as much. So if your 11 year old doesn't do as much as say a 23 year old, so their blood pressure in the end doesn't go up nearly as high, but the slope of the blood pressure work goes up similarly. Likewise, older people, their blood pressure at rest is higher. The slope on average is similar, but they can't do as much. So their blood pressure may go up the same amount as a younger person. Generally, when we see people with ex on exercise tests, they're either 
um, they, there's some risk. And so their pressure, pressure going, going up a lot is more indicative of something bad happening, but we have to take into account the context. In terms of the hemoglobin concentration changing with exercise, it does change and it does persist. I don't know exactly how long, but I'll tell you a story to tell you that it is meaningful and it is more pervasive than we know. Um, it's not just the hematocrit or hemoglobin concentration. I don't think it's going to almost ever be relevant to our decision-making just because um, if you just get a CBC after someone has intense exercise, because even if it persists for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours, I mean, maybe 5% or something like that. Um, and that's within normal measurement variation. So I wouldn't worry about that. But interestingly, I had a research assistant six years ago um, and I had, and she was very enthusiastic and she, she actually ended up doing a master's in biostatistics. She was very into that. And I said, oh, you know, there's this neat stuff. This is about five years ago, this, whatever this machine learning thing is, I can give you this database to sort of play with of, you know, a thousand people who had um, these bloods drawn, could be, let's say a CBC. Um, and uh, they had, half of them had exercise tests on the same day and most of them were before, but I don't really know. So why don't you just throw that into some algorithm? I don't know what the algorithm is and see what the differences are in these, uh, different blood tests. Um, and I said, but the, the things in the CBC like this, I don't know what MCH and MCHC and, you know, I know what MCV is and RDW and, but, you know, all these MC things, they're all about the same and RBC and hemoglobin and hematocrit, they're all like basically the same. So just use one of those, each of those sets, just because you don't want to confuse the algorithm. Interestingly, she, she didn't listen to me um, and she never did the artificial intelligence, but she did T-tests. Um, and, uh, which are just about as good. Um, and sure enough, the things that the, the biggest difference was in uh, albuminuria. Again, it's something that does go up with exercise and in general is a sign of disease, but is not necessarily a problem after exercise. So that was a good test of validity. But what was interesting is all those MCH things, they were the most different things after albumin. And there aren't many studies in humans, but in uh, racing horses, it turns out there is a lot of study of that for obvious reasons, because there's a lot of money in it, or there was. Um, and it turns out uh, the red blood cells and hemoglobin change quite a bit after intense exercise, presumably to be able to offload oxygen and to be able to flow better through capillaries, that it, there are changes in red blood cell characteristics that may be subtle, but are real and do continue for a period of time after exercise. Again, an eye-opening, um, uh, question that sort of highlights how well tuned we are to be able to do things, not only as as uh, as humans, but also in our animal um, in our animalistic ways to be able to deliver that oxygen. Um, yeah, great, uh, thank you, thank sorry, you very much. Long uh, answer. Discussion. Yeah, it, no, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm going to ask uh, Shay to close the the grand rounds. Go ahead, Shay. Thank you for that uh, wonderful presentation and uh, letting us know what makes us human. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Really greatly appreciate it. We'll see you again on Friday for the Ask the Expert session, and then the next Tuesday we'll come back again with Grand Rounds. So thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.